Again, preaching from Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Hear now the very word of God. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he baptized he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along within his entire household that he believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, "Let those men go." And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We are here and we are listening. Father, pour out your spirit upon us. May it be that any sin, any circumstance, anything that is binding us and distracting us, keeping us from being able to receive your word fully, may those things be broken loose. May the doors be open to our hearts to hear your word now, that we would be more free in you, truly free, the freedom that has come by the power of your son's death and resurrection. May it be, Father, that you would transform us even more in this day as we've come here to hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is the end of this particular chapter, and it's a interesting end. I was tempted to stop there at verse 34. It was a nice way to end, but didn't really think that it would be good just to do a sermon on the, the last paragraph, 
or at least it would be difficult, probably great for a lot of other pastors. But for me, I thought it would be challenging, and I thought I would merge the two together. But nonetheless, I opted to um, name this particular sermon, I think, something about being free captives, captives that are free. But another particular title that I thought about for this one was Singing and Suffering. And they both have very similar um, meanings and, and can have different connections. But I think it would, be, it would have been maybe helpful to even do that as I got further along. I'd already typed in the title that you have in your orders of worship. And then oh, I should have gone with the singing and suffering because the last particular sermon would have been more striving and serving. Because we had Paul uh, setting up the stage or had God setting up the stage with Paul and the other disciples and apostles there as they encountered that girl that was possessed with a demon. And it said that he was greatly annoyed. And I, my argument in preaching the passage was that it wasn't the kind of annoyance that you and I may have in our normal kind of daily irritations, but that it was this serving, striving and serving. There was this difficulty in what he was trying to do. It was an action type verb in a sense with his annoyance that he was doing something with difficulty because he was encountering the very darkness of the demonic world right there in front of him and in a very unusual circumstance where she's actually proclaiming the truth, but he knows that she is doing it and that she is captive by the dark power of Satan. And that brought grief to him and it made the ministry difficult, but he would continue on even to the point and with the very great desire to release her from that captivity, knowing that once that would occur, that all hell would break loose and that he would create a disruption before him. And so he went from striving and serving to now suffering, singing and suffering. And I think these are good examples for us. I think it's a good example, as Acts is, for us to show the foundational definition of what it's going to be like as the church or what it should be like. And again, being reminded that these are extraordinary circumstances for our ordinary calling as the church. That even though we do not live in the apostolic age, and I know I reference that a lot, and, and if you have questions, and I do want to make a side note that if you would like to talk more about the distinctions of why is it that we do not have apostles now, and how is it different? Because a lot of people will go into Acts, and they'll look at the particular things, and they'll go to the extraordinary, and they anticipate that that will be how their Christian life is defined. And there are not the apostles, and the signs that came with them have ceased. But there are things that the signs point to, and there are the things that are defined in that that are continuing as the church. And so we see the foundations of this church that Christ has built, but we also hear our marching orders, and we also hear inside of this what the nature of the church should look like. And here Paul was striving as he was trying to establish the church. He went from the very nice and almost scenic um, story with Lydia there by the river, 
where the, he was speaking to the women. And it was very lovely. And there you can imagine how nice it was. He just went and had conversation. And he was able to talk. And the heart of Lydia was opened up. And they baptized Lydia in our household. And it was just a, one of those things. Of, oh, that's the way it should be. That's the way ministry should be. And then they went the, again later on to go to the place of prayer. And then they ran into demons. And now they're striving and there's difficulty. And as he's continuing on day by day, maybe even thinking, man, it would be nice to go back to what it was like just a few days ago. But then knowing that the very purpose of the gospel is to release people captive from darkness, he speaks in the power of Christ's name and she is free. And again, as I said, all hell breaks loose. They come and they beat Paul and Silas particularly because they knew that they were Jews, not thinking about the fact that, they, that Paul was a Roman citizen, beating them with rods, stripping them naked. Paul knew that that would likely happen, and I think that was a part of his striving, the difficulty that we would like for it to be more like the lovely Lydia situation and not the demonic slave girl situation and being beaten with rods and the persecution that came from that. But then to see that now they are here, and in the last passage, they are not just in prison, they are in the inner prison. And they are not just sitting in a room. When we go to jail tomorrow, we will uh, maybe they'll give us a tour like they sometimes do, and there's these nice little pods, and they, you know, when I say nice, it's nice in comparison to what you see in this particular story, you can go over now and look at They still have what they believe is the very jail cell that Paul was in. You can look into it and you can see that it's not like what we'll see tomorrow at the Virginia jail, the Abingdon, Virginia jail. It's a very different circumstance. Well, they were in stocks. They, it says in the passage right before that their feet were in stocks and their Their hands were shackled, obviously, from what's being said in this particular narrative. And if it was in the inner jail, it would not have been the most comfortable place. This is maximum security because of such a disruption that the release of someone from captivity to demonic forces brought upon this community. They thought, we've got to put an end to this. We've got to stop this kind of thing. It is disrupting our world. And so they were not going to risk any possible way of them being able to find escape. So they were naked and beaten, put into the deepest and darkest place of this prison. They were in the pit, and they were in the pit with other maximum security prisoners. And so these were criminals. These were people who likely deserved it. it was, these were people who needed to be put in a particular place because of whatever occurred in their life. And so here we have now, in the very next paragraph, in the middle of the night, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. There's a lot there just in that particular sentence. But one, that God's people, the ones who have been appointed to proclaim the gospel after being beaten for doing the very thing that God had told them to do, after being shamed and stripped and put in a place 
Whereas at the, the worst place, being con- significantly in contrast, probably thinking about just days ago how they were down by the river to pray. And now they're down into the dungeons and still praying and still singing hymns because their God hadn't changed. Their circumstances changed, but their calling had not changed. Their calling to praise and pray had not changed. This is a remarkable response to faith that, brothers and sisters, I am not accustomed to and I'm not fond of and not prepared for. Someone asked me yesterday if some of the trials that I've gone through in the past few weeks, if I could go back to the day before the trials began, what would I tell myself in preparation for those trials? I haven't responded to that text, and I told them that I'm still thinking on that. Maybe because of my preparations for this particular passage, one of the things that came to mind was, I think I would go and try to learn more thoroughly some new psalms because I think I would need to hear them. Even in this past week, through some remaining elements of those trials, I was reminded in my head over and over again to grow not weary in doing good. And then I w- finally the next morning, I should have done it that night when I was struggling the most with it. I went and I just went back and looked at the, the passages that talks about growing weary. And it threw me to Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 was a perfect place for me to be where you have David having water going up to his neck and he is losing his footing and his throat is parched from crying out to God. Here is a very ironic image of being consumed by water, but not having the water refreshing water to be able to quench even the pain that he is experiencing through his, to his cries to God. But then being reminded by the end, as many Psalms are that, God will save him. God will hear the cries and will re-firm up the foundations and he will actually bring shame to the enemies, his enemies, the enemies of God. What a refreshing and powerful psalm that is. Here, Paul and Silas were going on in ministry and they, had, they didn't have a hymn book in there like probably what we will have tomorrow. They will have hymn books and Josiah's already picked out a list of hymns that we'll be able to sing. No, they had these things upon their minds and it was what actually propelled them into ministry. And they're praying and singing in a way and God had already opened the door to allow these prisoners and be mindful that these prisoners who truly have a very vivid reality to their need of hearing the gospel of Christ. And it's being done here. And then suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. This tremendous image that here these who are captive by their own sins and these who are captive who are doing because they were presenting the gospel, that God opened the doors that were between them, this division that was ultimately between the lost in the Savior, the doors are being opened by the proclamation of the praise and petitioning to God. Both of these things, one, this, this really, the smaller thing was occurring in the actual shaking of the foundations 
of the prison. Hearts were being opened because once the things that captive, made captive the captives were loosened, they still stayed. They were already freed somewhere in this transformation of listening. They didn't run. And the jailer, who was one who was being faithful to his command to keep them, as the word said in the previous paragraph, to keep them safe, meaning keep them secure, keep them in the most secure place of the jail, saw that that particular binding and those particular walls and those particular chains and those particular stocks could not make captive those that the Lord has set free. He responds with really not just fear, but with seeking to do something that in this particular worldview of this jailer thought it would be more honorable. And it was, if you read about the history of what these kind of men would do in these circumstances, it would be a way to at least have some remnant of honor in this world if he would just simply put an end to his life. And Paul, filled with grace, you got to remember where he was just moments ago, being stripped and beaten. Have any of you all ever been beaten by someone? Hurt? Whether physically or emotionally? Was the, one of the first things you would want to do is to extend grace? And mercy to someone, to be concerned about their well-being. I don't know how I would respond if I would be silent after maybe holding on to some type of bitterness. But Paul cried with a loud voice, and this should be a mantra to us, just as he was, maybe the word mantra is not the best use in a pulpit, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> was thinking about that the other day, use of words like karma and things like that, or it, it was like a mecca of Christians coming together. I'm like, wait a minute, those are really bad uses of words. It's probably the same thing, so I ask your forgiveness there. You know what I mean. Probably a good you know, slogan for us. Just as Paul was being motivated to release the woman, the girl with a demon to be free, and that was his motivation. Our motivation should be, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That we should be our posture toward even those who would have been our enemies. Knowing that God has the ability to set others free from whatever thing that they are captive. To do not harm yourself, for we are all here. It should be a reminder to each other, especially if not to those who are outside of the household of faith. For those inside of the household of faith, we should be those that are finding opportunities continually to encourage each other. Especially when we see that maybe a brother and sister in Christ are doing things that are, is harming their relationship with God or harming their relationships with one another, to say, don't do, you don't have to do this. That would be the ultimate love to highlight for them that their actions or their thinking, they're believing the lies of Satan either to be destructive to themselves or to others, 
are nothing but lies. We are all here with you through this particular struggle. I've heard those words often of late and been encouraged by brothers and sisters saying, we are all here with you together. The jailer cried for the lights and rushed in. He was in a moment of darkness without seeing the reality. He was responding to darkness to even bring harm to himself. And then when he saw Paul and Silas and the others there, he was trembling with fear and he brought them out and he said, and here we go again with, you need to have that Acts 2 template always in your hand as you are reading through the book of Acts. And he says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Just as the Jews, when they heard the gospel preached from the Old Testament in Acts 2, seeing the power of the Holy Spirit on display before them, said, what shall we do? And then they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will and you will be saved. You and your household. I mean, let's go back. I think every time we see anything that looks like that particular that template, go back to Acts chapter 2. And let's look at that just real quick. We want to keep moving here in verse 36. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is Peter, remember. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You've got to remember that their hearts were hardened. They were captive to their own sins, but because of the proclamation of the truth and because of the power of the Holy Spirit, the very Holy Spirit that was promised in the Old Testament would be the thing that would circumcise the hearts of God's people. They then said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Keep that echoing in your mind as you go back and maybe read what we read out of the Canons of Dort today. If you need some kind of reassurance that this effectiveness of Christ's death For our sins are only to those whom he calls to himself. And then it says, with many other words, he bore witnesses and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Fast forwarding back to Acts Chapter 16, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The context of the salvation that we see in Acts chapter 2 is the same context that we have here. Some may argue, well, he was wanting to be saved from the potential wrath of what would be coming because he thought he failed in his job. That might have been something that was in his mind and could have been a provocation, but We see here that Paul was definitely bringing context from what had been the very initiation of the call of the church to the very specific things that are going on here because it says, and they said, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. 
and to all who were in his house. They explained that more thoroughly, maybe even going back to the account of Acts chapter 2 and explaining what they meant by this salvation that would come to him, that would be promised even to those in his household, the spirit that would come and free him from his own captivity and his own hardness of heart. And then he took them that hour, showing a response, which is repentance, a change from being a contributor to the very suffering of God's people, now being one who has turned around from his ways to now take them out and to wash them, to wash their wounds so that they may be healed, to make some type of response of showing that he was no longer one that was going to bring the wounds, but one who would help heal the wounds. And that sign of repentance and faith, and through the hearing of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, he was then baptized at once, he and all his family. Again, showing this covenantal continuity that we see from Acts chapter 2, we see just in previous paragraphs, With the household of Lydia, this theme continues. These are foundational themes of what it is to be in the church, taking this gospel and bringing it home into the household. Just as Mary prayed this morning in our prayer time that God would raise up men to lead their households, understanding this biblical framework that goes all the way back to what we read in our prayer time this morning with God coming to Abram. And bringing forth promises of his kingdom through the offspring of his people. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And they rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. That their particular household would now be marked. Marked with baptism and marked with an understanding that they are now recipients of the promises that were proclaimed by these who brought forth the call of the gospel. We have a lot here. It's a similar theme being repeated, and and God knows how we are. We have to be told over and over again what his kingdom looks like, what his power is capable of doing. Understanding here the center themes of what it is that we need. We need a Savior. We need salvation. We need Jesus Christ. And using all of these beautiful stories, chapter 16 hatches such a tremendous diversity from the very beginning, again, reminding you. And I think this is really a wonderful thing that Luke has portrayed for us, that God works through generational faithfulness when we see that when Paul meets Timothy... That Timothy had a multi-generational fruit being born in him that came from his grandmother and came from his mother. Seeing how God had used these women to teach the truth of God, the word of God, generationally landing into Timothy, preparing him and equipping him perfectly in a situation where he is in a multi-ethnic situation himself, now ministering the gospel that once belonged only to the Jews and is now going to the Gentiles. And here he is, a mixed breed himself, that's been filled with the work of God's 
power multi-generationally. And then we see the gifts of Lydia being manifested that came from a secular world. Her gifts and abilities that came from God, but her context being from a secular world. And now how she was drawn across away from where they were over to Europe and at a perfect time was able to be in a place by the drawing of God and by the presence of the gospel through the preaching of Paul and Silas. She and her household were now being marked as covenant believers. And then her giftings of wealth and her giftings of a large home became the foundations of the church there in Philippi. These are encouraging stories, but then the one that we would probably all say, well, let's pick one of those other two. We'd like We'd like to see that multi-generational flow, and, and God promises that, and, and we can hold on to that promise once the Lord has brought us to him, and we can keep hoping on to that and holding on to God and showing that he does that, and we can look at how God has gifted us, even in a place when we were not captive by him, when we were captive by the world, and use those gifts that were manifested in, and even use those fruits for his gospel. I remember I asked how I was when I was in high school. I was like, Lord, make me rich so that I can be able to do and build great things for you. All right? I want to take that role. I'm up for that one. <laughs> of course, that would be the nice way to go. But how many of us are ready here to say, okay, and look how much Luke spends on this particular example for us of what the ministry of the gospel is going to look, at, look like. It's powerfully scary to see that this will be actually more consistent to what Jesus told us in the Gospels, that the contrast of the Gospel will look like, that it will be painful. All of it's true. All of it is how God furthers his kingdom. All of it's wonderful. All of it really is the same because the thing that is being shown here in this is an illustration for us to understand just how captive we are in our sin, just how deep and in dark of a dungeon we all are. That's the thing that we realize when we go to jail ministry, and I have to remind the inmates there that when I'm there, it's not a matter of like, well, I'm going to come in here and help these guys out. So when I go there, I realize that in many ways, those inmates have a greater understanding and are much closer to the light than I am. Because we have so many ways to be deceived in our darkness, to to keep ourselves locked up in the dungeons of our secret sins. And they've been able to see very vividly how their sins are destructive and what a grace that is. Sometimes it takes this kind of response from God in our lives to wake us up, to break those hard hearts. Sometimes there has to be a hard rock crushing the hardness of what we have inside of us. But again, this particular narrative ending here with rejoicing, with celebration, just like it began. It's still the same. They're still singing the same hymns, whether they're inside of the prison or whether they're outside of the prison. They're rejoicing in the Lord. So, yes, we should be always preparing and we should when we have moments like this here, when we're together by freedom and by all kinds of comfort, we have, you know, pastries and coffee. It's pretty sweet. 
(laughs) the privileges that we have. But go back and look at that psalm that Jonathan picked for us this morning. We need to learn that so when we don't have that piece of paper with us, whenever we're in those moments when really it's so dark, whether it's when you're crying in your bed or when you're driving somewhere or when maybe you are actually physically captive from being able to pick up a piece of paper, learn those psalms in your heart. I think that it's important for us to be prepared that maybe we would get to that third example of what ministry is like. But I do want to reference here, I would like to close there, but in the providence of the Lord, I think that we need to look at this next part here. It says, and when the day, when it was day, now you got to keep in mind here that a lot has gone on. It was midnight when they were singing with the stocks on, and now that here they are, it's daytime. I mean, they've already had a tremendous Revival. They've had baptizing. They've had more preaching. They've had eating and gathering together. And now it's now day. They're like, whoa, well, a lot happened in that little short period of time. The magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And you know, you're going to have to read in between the lines a little bit. It's like, what caused that? And, and, and it's difficult. And so some of the filling in the lines, I'm not saying has the same level of authority, but we can make an assumption that this probably created a bit of a disturbance in the community. <laughs> Somebody probably heard about the fact that the high security prison had a breach. And they don't know how, but you know now people are, they're still around, but they are free and they went and they had this baptism and... We saw that they were eating together, the jailer and the prisoners, that they were, you know, something is really whacked. And so likely when they heard that these, these things are going on and people in the community now have the, the light of what had occurred shining upon them, so let these men go, they were probably just befuddled. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. So this tells us they were back in the jail. I don't, I'm not sure why, other than to see here that Paul, being used as an instrument of God, had a strategy to continue on this ministry work of establishing the church in this region by working along with the civil magistrate, working along with their civil rules, understanding the law well enough to being able to use a strategy Remembering that God has appointed the civil magistrate for a purpose and they have particular laws and they have particular ways. Paul seems to be here from what we can gather building a foundation of preparing the relationship between the civil magistrate and the church. And that he's going to establish a trajectory of understanding by putting them in a humble place. He says, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and they do now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. He was going to make it a public spectacle what had occurred. He was going to make them come. He was going to make them respond. He was going to put them in a position, obviously here, to actually apologize for what they have done. To be a warning to them, to make them come to the realization of not only the power of God, of what had occurred to them, 
but also how they had been inconsistent even with their own rules and their own laws and had done something destructive even in their own communities. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them, leave the city. And so they, Paul and Silas, went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. These were strategic foundations of being those who were equipped and prepared in the gospel, but also understanding the nature of things that were going on around them. One, understanding the nature of what, if they are fruitful and faithful in what they're doing, they're going to cause a disruption in their city. Are we willing to minister in a way that will be a disruption to our city? But at the same time, are we those who are not going to just be captive to the idea of being rebellious and disruptive, but be those who are working with the civil magistrates? You know, I I know people who are willing to protest and post really big words on their social media about how they're willing to stand up against the government, but I don't meet a lot of people who are willing to go and talk to the local city council or to people who are operating in a variety of different public offices to go and even just pray with them and to visit with them and befriend them. I know some people who like the idea of befriending them and working along with them, but they're afraid of opposing them (laughs) and pointing out to them the destruction of what's going on when they defy God's word and his laws. Here we have Paul showing for us God showing for us through the writing of Luke here this this amazing and beautiful balance to be willing to be beaten by the civil magistrate, but not just to ignore them. For the sake of the furthering of the kingdom to continue to work with them and talk to them, understanding the laws. I've heard people in the past talk about, you know, forget about Roe v. Wade. Do what's right. Just forget about working on that. And in some respects, I, have a, I lean in that way many, in many ways. But I'm also very thankful for the people who have worked really hard for the last few decades to destroy Roe v. Wade. And we should be very grateful for the giftings of those people, even those who may be a little wishy-washy with some of their ministry approach. Be thankful because I promise you every single one of us are wishy-washy on something that we will need to repent of in some time. Let us not be so arrogant to think that we've got it all figured out. Let us be thankful for how God uses people in a variety of different ways, but let us learn from the example of the word to be willing. Now, when we face trials that are really probably fairly minor compared to what other trials we may face, to be ready to sing and pray during those times, to be examples to our families and to each other here in this congregation when we face our difficulties to not give up and just lay low, but to continue to pray and sing and proclaim. There'll be a day where God may open up tremendous doors in very dark and difficult places. Let us practice doing that now. But then on the other end of this, let us continue to be those following that Acts 2 example 
that we're willing to come together around each other, continually showing encouragement to each other. As we see here again, each paragraph ends with encouragement and rejoicing. Be those who will gather. Don't forsake the assembly of one another, not just in worship, but in fellowship. Come to the picnic next Sunday. Encourage your brothers and sisters. Listen out for ways to bring encouragement into their lives. Rejoice in God together. Each time during this situation, they didn't just go home and say, man, that was tough. I'm just going to go hit, I'm just going to go lay down. They came together. They ate and they encouraged each other and then they moved on. That's what we're here doing now. We have come together by the command of God in thanksgiving and proclamation of what Christ has done for us. And we've come and Jesus wants us to come together around his table to, to remember what he has done all the way back to what he did in Exodus and then what he did in the gospel, the pinnacle place of how he established his table and then how it continued through the early church and how it will continue at the great wedding feast of the Savior and his church. That's what this table is for, to be encouraged that he has always been with his people. He has always provided a sacrifice and he has won us over through that so that we will sit not only near him, Not just like the Syrophoenician's faith of under the table, but we actually are sitting with him in the same type of seat, in his seat, being granted the inheritance of him. The king now belongs to us through his body and through his blood. Let us come together with thanksgiving.